You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Turn back in our Bibles to the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, which uh, has already been read to us in its entirety. Uh, when I received the summons to preach this morning, um, of course, one is faced with the choice of anywhere in the Bible, but it being Easter Sunday morning, that kind of narrows the intelligent possibilities. I didn't look up to see what the order of service contained, but I was delighted when I came in to discover that David had already arranged in the providence of God that the passage that uh, I had chosen to preach on should be the Scripture reading. And if you want to follow in the church Bible, you should find it on page 1089 or thereabouts. And I want to direct our attention this morning largely to the first 18 verses although I may refer to the rest of the chapter. There was a very famous minister in London. Um, The older ones, the elderly, may remember his name. He was a Methodist minister in, I think, the Methodist Central Halls Church by the name of W.E. Sangster. At the end of his life, he was particularly afflicted physically, And the last Easter Sunday morning of his life, he was unable to speak. And so he wrote a little note to his son who was attending him. And on the note were written these words, How sad to wake up on Easter Sunday morning and not to be able to shout, Christ is risen. And then a little dash, and he added some more words but how much sadder to wake up on Easter Sunday morning and not to want to shout out, Christ is risen. And in a sense, this section, this chapter, whole chapter in John's gospel, it takes us from that second position, waking up on Easter Sunday morning and not being able to shout out with joy, Christ is risen to living through the rest of Easter Sunday and wanting to shout to the whole world, Christ is risen, and as actually is indicated, hinted in this passage, the disciples are told on that very day that they're to go into all the world and preach the message of the resurrection. I want us to think about this passage at two levels, uh, to to imagine, as it were, this is a tapestry, like the Bayeux Tapestry or the Scottish Tapestry, and we've come into the museum and and we take a quick look at it. And then somebody who has designed it, it just happens to be there and says to us, did you notice this? And no, I didn't notice that. I said, well, let's walk over the tapestry again and I'll show you some of the things that are painted into it. 
Essentially, there are two elements to this narrative, and they both flow out of major themes in John's gospel. In fact, this whole chapter, which I hope we'll see when we look at it the second time, this whole chapter is full of hints that have been given in the great symphony that is John's gospel of how the whole story is going to end and what its real significance is. But at first sight, if we just read through John's gospel, at first sight, I think we would immediately notice that in these first 18 verses, there are two major themes of John's gospel that kind of come to their climax in the resurrection of Jesus. The first of them is that in a fairly remarkable way in John's gospel, there is a story of conflict between darkness and light, between death and life. And the first thing that John is telling us here about the resurrection of Jesus is that this is the story of Jesus' victory in the conflict. And then the second element that that comes to a kind of fulfillment in these verses is that running through John's gospel right from the beginning is a kind of story of Jesus being on trial. And what we get here is the final verdict in the trial. And both of these themes appear in the opening words of the gospel, the prologue, as we call it. And they're they're played out through the whole of the gospel. First of all, there is conflict. John speaks about Jesus being the light that has come into the world, and the darkness tries to extinguish the light, and apparently has just managed to extinguish the light. Jesus has just been crucified. But says John right at the beginning, the light will not be extinguished by the darkness. And so, here are these disciples. They believe that the darkness has extinguished the light, and they're about to discover that the darkness cannot extinguish the light. And then also in the prologue to John's gospel, the first 18 verses of the gospel that sets the tone and and gives us some of the themes of the gospel, we're told that there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist, not John the author of the gospel, and he came to be a witness to Jesus. That word witness is a word that reminds us of criminal trials and witnesses being called forward. What did you see? What did you think? What happened? And as you read through John's gospel, you find that witness after witness is called forwards to give testimony to Jesus. It's full of characters, individuals, people meet, and almost without exception, you'll find that they will say something about Jesus. And they're like so many witnesses being called forwards by John before Jesus is finally tried, before the Sanhedrin, before Pontius Pilate found guilty of claiming to be the Messiah and the King of the Jews and executed. And all these witnesses, without exception, point to Jesus, and they all say He is what He claimed to be. He really is the light of the world. 
He really is the Son of God. He really is the Savior that God has promised. And so, two underlying themes that slowly have been worked out through the first 19 chapters are coming here to a climax. And first of all, we're learning about Jesus' victory in the conflict. And the whole narrative exudes authenticity, doesn't it? Uh, No early Christian in his right mind or her right mind would have told the story this way, as you've probably often enough heard, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in a Jewish court. The idea that a Jew would want to say, Jesus is risen, and then point to women as the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, psychologically incredible in the world in which John wrote. We might find that distasteful. But my dear friends, even if you were a feminist and you wanted to demonstrate the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus in the first century, it would never have crossed your mind to say that the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Indeed, it's something that you would have hidden away. And then this little element in the story that, uh, that suggests very close friendship, that when John writing, is writing his gospel and he talks about himself and, and Peter running towards the tomb, he just uh, interjects there uh, as though writing to people he knew who would smile because they knew both these men. Uh, by the way, I got there first. And then the whole way in which Mary Magdalene responds, she, she, she runs back. She had gone with other women, apparently. She runs back. She tells Peter and John they run away, and uh, we don't know what the other women did, but Mary Magdalene is discombobulated. She doesn't know what to do. And so she does the one thing that her instinct tells her to do, and she makes her way back to the grave, and, and she's, she's very, very confused. And all of this uh, breathes the atmosphere of authenticity. And this is not the way to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, but it's certainly an indication that John, when he wrote his gospel, uh, had the sense of the very fabric of the occasion in which he understands as he tells the gospel that the real significance of all this is that death has been defeated by his Savior, that the, the garments of death lie remaining there in the garden tomb. And he does this because at the end of the chapter, he wants to say, now, Jesus did many extraordinary things, and this is the most extraordinary of them, but I'm writing this so that you may come to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and coming to believe in Him, you may experience what we experienced. We had experienced death but in His resurrection, we came to experience eternal life. 
And so, in a sense, this is, the, this is a kind of climactic chapter in this gospel. Chapter 21 is like an appendix at the end, and John says in verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, not by reading, not by knowing, but by trusting in the risen Savior, you may have life in His name. John, you remember we are told, gone into the tomb, and he saw the clothes lying there. He had relatively recently been at another tomb, described in John chapter 11, where he had seen Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he, he must have known instinctively, even, even if, he, if, he, if he didn't think of it consciously, he must have known instinctively this is different. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus, he came, as it were, staggering out of the tomb, uh, clothed in the grave clothes, the bandages that were wrapped around him. And Jesus said, get these, get these clothes of death off him and let him walk into his future life where they all knew he would die again. But there's something very different about this. Uh, we're told that the grave clothes had been, had been folded away, that the cloth that covered the face and the head was, was laid neatly at a side. They say, I've no uh, evidence that it's really true, that what a good carpenter did when he had finished his work at the end of the day would be to take the cloth that he had wrapped around his face to deal with the perspiration in the Mediterranean heat and fold it neatly away and put it down and walk out of his workshop. And whether that's true or not, it's certainly what John saw in Jesus, this victory over death, this climax of the conflict between the darkness and the light, between death and life, and Jesus gaining the victory. And we're told, it's interesting, isn't it, how these three people who have come to this garden tomb, how they respond in different ways. Mary, Mary sees all the evidence of the resurrection, and she's just confused. Peter sees all the, all the evidence of the resurrection, and for once in his life, he's got nothing to say. And John sees the evidence of the resurrection, and we're told he believed. And in coming to believe, he entered into the victory of everlasting life. And then there's the rest of the story, at least in the first half of the chapter, which is so exquisitely beautiful not so much telling us about Jesus' victory in the conflict as about the final verdict in the trial. And it focuses on Mary Magdalene. She's come back to the tomb. The boys have run there, and now they're running back, and she comes to the tomb, and she's, she's very confused indeed, and she stands weeping outside the tomb. She sees two angels who speak to her, woman, why are you weeping? She says to them, they have taken away my Lord. Somebody has stolen the body. It doesn't cross her mind that grave thieves 
do not unwrap grave clothes, fold them up, and leave them neatly on the stone. He's not able to make sense of this. And then this poignant incident when she says, they've taken away my Lord, I don't know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing. He'd been, he'd been listening all the time. He had been there. She hadn't seen him. And now that she sees him, she doesn't recognize him. And it, it's so interesting that, that he uses a word. He actually uses a word that she had heard him use three days before, when on the cross he had looked down on John and Mary, his own mother, and said from the cross, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. John, take her as your mother. And here from the very same lips, the very same word, I mean, isn't it an amazing thing when you lift the telephone and somebody speaks, how often you know exactly who they are? Isn't that the most amazing thing in the world that just from a word you can recognize somebody's voice? And you would think of all things, these, these that were among the last words she had heard her beloved master speak, and, and yet still she's not able to take it in. And she thought he was the gardener. And then he says to her, Mary, and this time there was no doubt. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And it looks as though she just moves towards him. She wants to hold on to him, hug him, embrace him. You're here. She can hardly take it in. Sometimes actions speak when words have no voice. And uh, he says, now, things have changed, Mary. Don't hold on to me as though, as though it's the old days. These are new days. This is the beginning of a new world. So, that's the tapestry. And, and we've spotted some things, but let's, let's walk back with John and let's imagine John has his own gospel as the guidebook, and he's saying, now, look at this and, and remember this. And what do we see now? Well, let me suggest that we see, uh, first of all, the fulfillment of words that Jesus had spoken about himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He calls his sheep by name. He recognizes them they detect His voice, and they follow Him. And a stranger they will not follow. This is exactly what happens here. It's as though John is saying now, see here not only what happened to Mary, see here the kind of thing Jesus does. He's around. We didn't notice Him. How often this is true in our lives. Many of us could, you know, we could spend the rest of Easter Sunday, couldn't we, coming up one by one, talking about the times 
when Jesus was present and working in our lives, and we had no sense whatsoever or any interest whatsoever in anything Jesus would do. And then, perhaps in church, perhaps reading the New Testament, perhaps listening to someone else talk about how they'd become a Christian, it's almost as though for the first time we hear Jesus speaking our name. And we, we realize this is you. That first happened to me earlier on in John's Gospel as a youngster. I'd read the Bible for five years, almost every single day, maybe missed five days in five years. And then I'm reading in John's Gospel, Jesus saying, now you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And that was what I thought. I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. You read the Bible. You prayed. You, I was 14. You helped old ladies across the street. You gave your seat to them in the bus. They didn't handbag you for doing it in those days. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Just try my very best. And then these words that Jesus speaks, your problem, my boy, is that you will not come to me to have life. That's exactly what's happening here. Mary is hearing the voice of Jesus. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. And she turned, embraced him as her master. So, it's really a picture in a way of, of how we all become Christians in the first place, how he calls each of us by name, and then secondly, it's a picture of how forgiveness of sins comes to us. Now, you might think it would, it would take an expert to show me this in this story, but it's here in this story. Um, do you remember what Jesus had done just before He was crucified? He had prayed with His disciples in John 17. It's often called the high priestly prayer because it's so reminiscent of what the high priest did before he went into the presence of God on the great day of atonement once a year with a sacrifice for the people's sins, and then he would come out and he would bless the people with the benediction. And this is exactly what happens here. If we read on as we did earlier in the service, we would have seen Jesus come twice to His disciples and His first words. Well, his first word was peace. It was the first word the priest spoke when the sacrifice had been accepted, and the people knew at least for another year, in some sense, God is covering our sins. And now Jesus has come out from the place where He Himself has become the sacrifice for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And he, he comes and He speaks about the forgiveness of sins. And as though to make this crystal clear, He says to the disciples, did you notice in our second reading, go and tell people about this so that if you forgive the sins of anyone, He's not saying they've power to forgive sins. He's saying the message that they will tell others about the risen Redeemer has the power to forgive sins in Jesus' name. You would almost think in this chapter, 
John is telling us how to become a Christian and what it means to be a Christian. We hear the voice of Christ calling us, and then we receive the forgiveness of our sins. And then thirdly, He delivers us from the bondage of death. That's what this message was. If you read the literature of the first century in the, in the Greco-Roman world in which the gospel first came, you'll find all kinds of indications of the utter hopelessness of life of people who took things seriously, just as is true today. The tragedy of the human situation in the Western world today is most people are not prepared to take the beliefs they profess seriously, because the beliefs they profess lead to despair. Life is meaningless. Astonishes me how in our schools, on the one hand, biological determinism is taught. You are really just a mass of chemical reactions. And on the other hand, you're a princess. You see, these two things don't go together, do they? If you're simply a, a crude animal with a mass of biological chemical reactions, then the result of thinking that's what you are is bound to be a sense of hopelessness, pointlessness, meaninglessness. It's just whereas people in the 1960s were sufficiently serious about it to realize that's where it, land, it landed. Whereas in the early days of the 21st century, we mask it all. But you see, that's the issue here. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so extraordinary, not only because it fulfills prophecy, but because it gives hope of everlasting life. Hebrews 2 speaks about this. It speaks about Jesus delivering from the fear of death those who were subject to lifelong bondage and scratch every single human being and you find deep down the fear of death. Because interestingly, isn't it today, unlike the Victorians, the last thing we look at seriously and talk about we mock the Victorians for covering their tablecloths and table legs because they were so prurient. But bring up the subject of death and dying. And so this is the gospel. Christ calls us by name. Christ brings us the forgiveness of sins. Christ delivers us from bondage to the fear of death. And then in some ways, the most moving. He says to Mary, Mary, don't hold on to me, but there's something I want you to do, and this is what I want you to do. Look at what he says to her. It's extraordinarily poignant. He says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, and go and tell my brothers this. 
You see what he's saying? Right at the beginning of the gospel, John had said, you know, everyone who comes to believe in Jesus is brought into the family of God, becomes one of his children, and is actually able to say, Father. Now, people say, well, of course God's our Father. Listen to them in a time of crisis. Listen to them when things go wrong. And try and hear if there's anyone you know who in a blasé way says, of course God is our Father, ever calls Him Father, ever calls out Father in a time of need or crisis. No, the best they'll do, the highest they'll go is cry, oh God. And you'll find people who profess to be atheists even doing that, oh God, or my God, never, oh Father. Because, you see, if you're not born again into the family of God, you don't have that instinct. You don't say to somebody who's not your father, in whose family you don't live, Father. But Jesus says, now, my, my, my disciples, they're not just disciples. I'm bringing them into the family. They're able to speak to God as their heavenly Father, to know His tender care, to sense that He is overlooking their lives and providing them with all that they need. If anyone believes in Him, says John at the beginning of the gospel, God gives him the right to be called a child of God. And then there's this final thing. This final thing is true I can't be absolutely dogmatic about the details of this passage, but it's long fascinated me because John loves painting the tapestry and then saying, did you notice this in the tapestry? That makes you think when you read parts of John's gospel, you think, does John mean that? When Mary meets Jesus, John writes into the story. He didn't really need to write this into the story, but he writes into the story. She thought he was the gardener. And I wonder if John is actually saying to us here, you know, there's a sense in which she was right. Because John understood that right at the very beginning of the Bible story, when, when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, where the first world begins, Adam's the gardener. And what's happening here in this garden where Jesus rises from the dead is that He's beginning a new order of humanity altogether. He's starting a new world right at the very beginning of the service without any discussion between the two of us. John read those words from 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone's in Christ, there's a, there's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so he was the gardener, really. He was the gardener beginning to create this new world in which there would be men and women and boys and girls and young people who would trust in him and enjoy his presence and help him, as it were, to, to expand the garden of gospel grace into the world and to bring the message of the forgiveness of sins to the, 
to the whole world, and there in the garden, where the garden tomb was, the second gardener was beginning the second garden. There's much more here. But isn't this amazing that in the first Easter Sunday morning, this small group of people are experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its fullness, the way in which He comes in this marvelous way and calls us by name so that we know that in Him our sins are forgiven because He said, peace to you, peace to your soul, the way He delivers us from our bondage to the fear of death, the way in which He brings us into the family of God, and we call Him Abba, Father, the way He comes to us and brings us into a new world altogether. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. And here's Mary Magdalene. It's all before her and she sees nothing, hears no voice of Jesus, and then she hears the voice of Jesus, and she hears everything. Well, where would you be in all of this? Jesus has been around perhaps for a long time, And you never noticed it was Jesus. And then perhaps even today, what a day it would be, Easter Sunday morning, if you heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and found in Him my resting place and Christ has made me glad. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the presence of our risen Savior. We thank You for the way in which through the preaching and ministry of Your Word, we so often hear Him speaking to us by name individually and applying His Word individually to our situations. We thank You for the way in which You have called so many of us in this way, and we have found in Christ peace with God, adoption into Your family, deliverance from our fears, everlasting life, and the joy of the Lord. And we pray that this will be true for all of us, and that we may celebrate it in these coming minutes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace 
the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.